Aloha and welcome to the Startup Catalyst podcast produced by Sultan Ventures. I'm your host, Yasmeen Dar. This season, we'll hear insights from minority and women entrepreneurs and investors and how they're striving to make a difference. Today's guest is Donovan Kealoha, a director at Startup Capital Ventures, an early-stage venture capital firm with offices in Menlo Park, California, and Honolulu, Hawaii. In today's episode, we'll hear how a boy from the island of Lanai became a successful tech entrepreneur and what led him to investing. Plus, we'll find out how he's giving back to the local community through education. The Startup Catalyst podcast is brought to you by Accelerate HI, Hawaii's leading providers of interactive entrepreneurial workshops for anyone who wants to start or accelerate a business. Visit xlr8hi.com. Good morning, Donovan, and welcome to Startup Catalyst podcast here at Sultan Ventures office. All right, so tell us who Donovan Kalo is in an elevator pitch, 60 seconds. Or less. 60 seconds. Uh, <laughs> cool. I'm a venture capitalist at Startup Capital Ventures. I was um, born and raised on the island of Lanai. Um, grew up also on the west side of Oahu, public school educated, um, college uh, my professional degrees, taught for a little bit, uh, started a couple of companies, and now I'm a venture capitalist that spends my time in Hawaii and uh, the Bay Area. That's a really good pitch. Now, I know, you know, as an entrepreneur, everyone has that story of being an entrepreneur as a child. Can you take us back to those, as we call it here in the islands, Hanabata days? Yeah, so um, two stories that come to mind. Um, maybe not so Hanabara, but still young nonetheless. I was, um, I think I was a middle school student at Kamehameha Schools on uh, uh, Kapalama. Uh, and this is when friendship bracelets was all the rage. So um, I catch the bus home to Waipahu. At the time I was living in Waipahu. I get off the bus, run to, at the time, I think it was gems, buy a bunch of string and spend the time on the bus putting together these bracelets and selling them for like five bucks. Five um, bucks? That's expensive yeah, back then. Yeah. Well, supply and demand, right? Price <laughs> is the point where supply meets demand. So, you know, it's kind of doing that. I also, um, you know, on Lanai, maybe a little bit after that, I um, I used to buy a bunch of baseball cards, mm-hmm. trading cards here, mm-hmm. and take them back there and sell them um, at markups. And I don't know, it was a one, two, three times the markup, depending on what genre of card it was. So those are like some of the, the memories, I guess, that stick out of initial forays into entrepreneurship. You know, the way I see it, it's like you kind of had this vision as to what was hot, what people wanted, not necessarily needed, right? What they wanted. And you were able to turn that into this business that created you revenue. So, you know, fast forward to once you graduated from UH, went back to law school here at the Richardson School of Law here at the University of Hawaii. That was kind of like your first big, big deal, right? Where you had gotten into the venture capitalist world and um, created Adama Materials. Yeah. So even before that, right, I when I graduated from um, UH with a Hawaiian language degree, I taught for about four and a half years on Lanai. Mm-hmm. So um, when I first started teaching, I was teaching social studies and Hawaiian language. And at the time, or maybe about a year after I started teaching, the business and technology teacher left 
so the principal approached me and said, Donovan, you know, you seem pretty savvy at computers. You're going to teach the computer class. And by the way, you got to teach accounting and you got to teach business management. And I had no formal training. You know, I took no business classes at UOH. And so I was like, yeah, sure, shoots, let's do it. So, you know, the talk about um, uh, facilitated learning and team teaching, that kind of thing, I think I was like at the forefront of that because on the first day of class of teaching accounting, I sat the kids down and I was like, we're going to learn this together. We're going to read. You guys are going to read. I'm going to read. I'm going to answer the questions together. And so it's very brave of you. <laughs> yeah. But in that. So that's where um, in doing that and in, in teaching basically business from the book, you know, I, I, that little kernel of entrepreneurship that, you know, I had started or sewing early on kind of came back. And I was like, let's just do something and try to put some of this, you know, this knowledge that's in the book into practice. And so I started. Uh, a t-shirt line, like every good businessman in Hawaii does their first mm -hmm. business is a t-shirt line. We started a t-shirt line that was inspired by the lifestyle Lanai. So um, it was just basically t-shirts that we sold only on Lanai for Lanaians, and it kind of um, kind of took off for a bit. And I, I used that as an opportunity to kind of delve into business, get better at accounting, went to um, the Maui Community College took a class to formally learn accounting and, and then just sort of guerrilla marketing techniques. And it also gave me a chance to kind of bring students that seemed interested in business to help me do that. So um, it was kind of a cool experience. And in doing that, I also was sort of indirectly exposed to venture capital. So I met um, a part-time resident of the island. His name is John Mumford. He had just come off of winding down a real... Um, successful VC firm uh, and you know I was teaching but also working at the the little hotel and you know we he, we just got to striking up a conversation we became friends and he was telling me about this world called venture capital mm -hmm. and this is right around the time when I was thinking about going to law school so I was like wow that seems pretty cool right um, working with businesses bunch of different businesses all at once trying to help them out um, and the, I guess the the allure of being able to manage money too was pretty interesting. So um, going to law school, it was always my intent to be a business person, never to practice law. Uh, and so when I got there, I um, we started a, the business organizations because at the time there was no student organization that was focused on preparing students for business. Did a bunch of volunteer uh, things at the Business Action Center and other places just to and to get immersed in the world of business from a legal perspective. And then um, UH, the business school, they hosted uh, a business plan competition. And I kind of saw that as an opportunity to, to kind of put things into practice. Mm -hmm. Not so much of a theoretical person, I'm more of a person of practice. So um, we did a company. We started a, a road of business plan for an idea that a professor had worked on. One second place didn't quite go anywhere. Um, put that on the side. The following year, the Office of Technology Transfer and Economic Development reached out and wanted me to work with another professor who had just come off of research into material sciences and using nanotechnology. And that was the sort of the start of Adama Materials. And so um, we you met. were just like luck after luck after luck, I feel. Kind of luck, it's a story but just of luck. exposure, right? Luck, yeah. what does Oprah say? Like, luck is, you know, opportunities and just being prepared for the opportunity, but exposing yourself to different kinds of things. And 
you know, a little bit of Oprah and a little bit of Jim Carrey, right? Just say yes and do it. So, <laughs> Those yeah. are all very positive vibes that you've been attracting, I feel. Yeah, I'm kind of an overly optimistic person. I kind of downplay the risks in a lot of things and just kind of a go big or go home kind of person, I guess. So. My kind of person. <laughs> so you had Adama Materials. That was very successful. And then eventually you had... Uh, startup Capital Ventures. How yeah. long after Adama Materials did you um, create Startup Capital? So, you know, Adama had some but some success. Um, so we started Adama on the day of the Super Bowl. And I remember this because I missed it. It was the first time I, in a while that I had missed the Super Bowl. And right in the middle of the recession. And so it was just um, a hard time in raising money for a type of venture that venture capitalists typically don't invest in. But we were fortunate or lucky that um, I had a connection to John Dean, who at the time was in Startup Capital Ventures. Um, I met with him, uh, well, I met him at a UH class. Uh, it was an entrepreneurship class that he came and spoke to us. And I, you know, grabbed his card um, uh, and Sort of wasn't ashamed to ask for help and so when adama was birthed right he was the first person that i talked to and he uh, introduced me to his firm they got interested they introduced me to uh, our eventual lead investor in the valley um, and so that was success i think in and of itself in being able to raise money for a non-traditional type of uh, venture back type of business it took a lot of effort um, but we eventually it all eventually culminated in a Series A round that happened um, a couple of years after founding the company. Um, so, you know, it was kind of an R&D project. It, we, we spent a lot of time learning. So if you can count learning as success, then we were very successful in that regard. I stepped away from Adama, uh, I want to say three, four, maybe five years ago. Um, our lead investors decided to kind of bring the company and operations back to the valley and house it within their firm, and so that was kind of the opportunity for me to step out of the out of Adama. And uh, right around the same time, Startup Capital was in the process of raising their second fund, Fund Two. Uh, the general partners of that fund, Tim Dick, um, I worked closely with him in Adama. He was our investor, but also our CEO in the company, and he had asked. The other general partner asked me to come join the firm mm -hmm. uh, as an associate. So um, kind of leapt at the opportunity uh, and kind of that's how we ended up there. Interesting. Yep. And yep. so now how many um, businesses do you guys manage? So we're, we're what you could call a micro VC firm. You know, we're a sub $50 million fund. We invest anywhere between 250 up to a million into uh, capital efficient, high growth types of companies. Mm -hmm. um, in our current fund, we've made, as of today, or as of just this past week, 16 investments into companies primarily in Silicon Valley, but we've got a, a couple of investments that we made in Hawaii, uh, Washington, and even Southern California. So. Very cool. All right, so let's move on to inclusivity topics. Um, you know, as someone who grew up here, in the islands as a native Hawaiian, you know, as a public school graduate, 
you know, I'm sure you faced a lot of challenges, but at the same time, I feel like your upbringing has made you who you are as a hustler, as someone who is a go-getter, right? So personally, though, have you faced those challenges and hurdles because you are a minority in the industry and um, the way that you are treated or the way that you are um, perceived? Uh, quick story before I jump into that, because I sort of wrestled with that as I started my career in venture capital just a few years ago, but kind of bring, being brought up in a plantation community on the island of Lanai was such a unique experience that coupled with this innate innateness of mine, I guess, to want to build things and do different kinds of things kind of helps me, helps kind of inform my worldview of how we should be creating companies and opportunities that we should be looking at. So I worked on the, the last plantation harvest of the summer, uh, picking pineapples. Super hard job, right? Yes. Ass, uh, it's something that like was uh, told me that I never want to you know do that kind of work again. But also cool because it was such a, um, um, it was such an inclusive thing that reminded me of the importance of community because I, you know, I was 15, 16 at the time, young, strong, whatever, but I was just really bad at walking through the fields and picking up pineapples and, you know, following the boon as it made its way through the fields. And so I would typically or usually get fall behind and the nanas and the tatas who were on the other sides of me, right, at different aisles would jump in and help me out, right, so I could keep up. And that kind of stuck out with me about the importance of helping each other out right, for a shared purpose or a shared goal. Right. Um, and so, you know, kind of thinking about those kinds of things and other experiences and and, and diving into, you know, my Hawaiianness and trying to think about those kinds of things and coming into this um, this industry, this business, I, I you know, I kind of struggle with do I, you know, do I, how do I play their game? How do I? It's cultural, that's why. Yeah. You know, you grew up in that culture. Yeah. So when you interact with, and this is from my personal yeah. experience as well. When you interact with people who grew up in a different culture, where they treat you differently, it is a struggle to figure out yeah. how much aloha do I show them, or yeah. is it too much? Does that show that I'm vulnerable? Like, how do you yeah, that, deal with that? Show aloha. I mean, is that would that be taken as a weakness? Do I would I take that as a gimmick? Right. And so yeah. I had a, a mentor who was the CEO of one of the big companies was telling me that you got to play their game. You got to talk like them, look like them, dress like them. And I was like, hmm. but then that's not being true to who I am. Right. And so coming into that, I thought about like, I was, uh, I guess on the defensive, right. Looking for slights because I had, I mean, this is kind of an enviable position to be in, right. Being asked to be a part of a firm where you get to kind of access, um, opportunities and, and areas that most people don't. So always, at least initially, was kind of alert to perceive slights and that kind of thing. Are they kind of talking to me this way, that way? But then after a while, you kind of you kind of put that away because you, I, you look back at what you've done or what I've done and you look back at the people who have supported you along the way and you say, fuck it, right? I deserve to be here, right? Mm-hmm. I bring my own of values, I think, to this space. And I think there's a space for, you know, what we bring to the tech industry as people of this place. Do you pass along that same uh, philosophy to those you mentor as well? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, 
So like, trying to think of specific examples of how do we live those kinds of values, right? And so um, there's a Hawaii way of doing business, right? And there's a continental way of doing business. And the way to sort of distill it down is in Hawaii, we, we focus on relationship building, right? We're focusing on the long-term, whereas sometimes up, you know, in, on the continent, um, it can be transactional, right? And you're keeping mental notes of what you're doing, but then that becomes just like exhausting, right? And so you're looking for opportunities to build authentic relationships where you're not, it's aloha in its truest sense, right? You're looking to support them because you guys have a connection with each other, shared um, interests in different kinds of things. Um, and you you wanna develop a connection or a polina with them. And, and in doing that, then opportunities come about, right? In investing opportunities as a VC, um, you get to see different deals because you are taking the long-term view and not being so transactional. Like, you know, he sent me this deal, so I have to send him a deal. Just be proactive about sharing the law yeah. in that regard up there. So I'm going to have to speak with you. I feel like it's you don't see that as a challenge, more so as opportunities and learning experiences that you turn into something that is proactive and, and beneficial for you in the end. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I think that's your mentality for yeah, I think your you, life. <laughs> if, you, if you think of sort of um, problems, issues, you sort of operate from a deficit, right? I try to flip it at least, you know, I guess it's just my, you know, the way that my brain is wired, I kind of flip it on its head and just operate from a position of strength or, or you know, positiveness, I guess. I love that. Because I feel like that whole, you know, you, you speak about turning it on its head and and making it a positive one. I feel like that it that's a, a really solid piece of advice. That is one of my questions. Like if there's one specific thing that you could tell your our listeners how they can what they could do every every day in their life to help shift the needle in this disparity that we have with inclusiveness. Right. What can they do um, just to shift that needle a little? Two things that come to mind, right? At an individual level, in kind of looking inwards, one is having sort of the right mindset. Part of it is adopting, maintaining, and maintaining that right mindset. Uh, you know, related to that, I think, is sort of the actions and examining your actions to see whether or not they align with your personal values and core values. Uh-huh. Right? And then sort of related to that is this notion of self-awareness, uh-huh. right? And having sort of the awareness or capability to just figure out whether or not, you know, your actions or ask questions of yourself, whether or not your actions are continuing to be aligned with your values, you know, whether or not the mindset that you, you've adopted to effectuate change is still intact. I kind of think of, um, think of a quote um, that we say at my gym, in my box, right? And this is idea of being better than yesterday. Right? It's this idea of every day working on yourself to improve yourself. Right? And so if you've kind of got that awareness, you're incrementally making changes, but over time that you know becomes compounded. And as a result, right, you become better, um, a better change agent as an individual. And the output of that is then you become sort of more effective in the kinds of things that you pursue and in changing in attempting to change so the landscape and bring more diversity into whatever space that you're in. Um, yeah, you know, I think about you know, the other part of it too is that, you know, as you kind of 
do those kinds of things, you improve yourself on an individual basis, right? You kind of indirectly, or as a sort of a natural output of that, you become a role model yourself. Um, and you know, I kind of see that, you know, it's not something that you sort of you know, strive to become, but you just sort of, you just sort of develop into that. And I see that, you know, in the kids that we work with uh, in our Purple My Up programs, um, you know, we, you present to them this idea of what they can become. And if they're not, they don't necessarily see themselves as entrepreneurs or people that, you know, are in San Francisco doing interesting things, right? If you can present to them an alternative role model or something to aspire to, then you just sort of seed into their head um, that they can do these things. And then that sort of helps with diversity over the long term. Uh, the second part of it, I think, is uh, more outward facing. Um, it's this notion of not waiting to make change that you want to see in uh, in your world. I um, kind of, you know, as I get older, I get more philosophical and I kind of, you know, get more interested in, in, in philosophy. And so, I'm, uh, you know, that's why Buddhism and Stoicism is of interest to me. And it's this idea of being present and, and making the most of your day. And I like to have mementos of that. Right? So I have, you know, this is kind of cheesy, but I do have a coin that I carry with me every day. Right? It's this, 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 this coin. It's heavy coin. It's real quality, right? And it says memento mori, right? And it reminds you that you could... You could leave the earth, right? And and as I get older, I'm 43 right now, and you know, um, 10 years ago went by so quick, and I realized, why well, I've got like 20 years into retirement, quote unquote retirement, and I realized time goes by so fast that you've gotta, you've gotta not wait for the change. You've gotta be the active change agent and go about and do the, the kinds of things that you wanna, that needs to be done, so that we can create or create and create the change that we we need. Um, and so that means volunteering at, um, you know, community serving organizations. It's, you know, actively participating in your community. Um, it's volunteering at schools or helping organizations that um, are themselves sort of change agent organizations. In whatever space you're in, right? We're in the tech ecosystem. And so that, you know, the, you know there are a lot of organizations that are doing great things. Um, but if whatever space you're in. You, can, you don't have to wait. You start now. Even if you're um, just coming out of school, even if you're in high school, you don't have to wait. Support for the Startup Catalyst comes from American Savings Bank. ASB proudly supports today's innovators and entrepreneurs and is dedicated to helping business owners achieve their dreams. What's your dream? Talk to a branch teammate today or visit ASBHawaii.com. Equal housing lender, member FDIC. And, and speaking to that, especially with the current climate we have today, mm -hmm. talking more about the inclusivity of yep. all races, genders, yep. how do you feel like, you know, this this kind of um, movement that we're having right now, how do you feel that's going to be changing the startup industry regarding inclusivity within the next five, ten years? I think the industry right now is having hard but very necessary conversations where bad behavior is being called out. Um, it's causing the industry as a whole to re-examine itself um, and, and, and I guess follow through on necessary steps 
to bring about change for the better. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, recently we're starting to see um, women uh, venture capitalists and entrepreneurs sort of come together in a more organized fashion to really try to provide a platform um, for you know serving underserved entrepreneurs and and providing access and those kinds of things so that's that's really cool I think over the long term you know these kinds of hard discussions and changes that are necessary We'll start to bring in, you know, I think entrepreneurs that come from different places, different backgrounds, right? I like to say, or we like to say at Purple Maya, um, that you solve the problems that you see and where you come from, right? And so if you if you go to a private school, no, no knock against private schools, and you've had somewhat of a privileged background, you're going to see the world differently and think about the problems differently and solve for those problems differently, right? But if you're a kid grew up in you know poverty dysfunction your world is a lot different from you know everybody else's and and you know you're gonna think about things differently and I just think that having folks who you know are equipped with the skills network and abilities to create solutions to those big problems right is just good for the industry and creates a lot of opportunity for folks that are looking to to invest in, 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 in things that make the world better, to use a cheesy line. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's move to this controversial question. Is there a difference between race and racial bias? And how can our listeners identify their own inherent biases? I definitely know I have my own, and no. I try not to be, but it's just human nature. No. Right? No. You don't mean to be, but it's just the way you were raised or just the environment that you're in? Yeah, we can. Yeah, so um, I don't necessarily have a good academic answer for it, right? We sort of treat race a little bit differently than we do um, on the in, on the continent, right? I, I remember we like to tell ethnic jokes, but I think we do that in a way not to demean, but to build bridges, right? Because, you know, there are kind of quirks and things about... Um, how we do things, you know, how ethnic groups do things. And, you know, Frank DeLima likes to point those out. And it's funny, right? But I think it sort of it, it helps to kind of find commonality through humor that we could then engage each other as opposed to building up walls and segregating ourselves uh, to the detriment of collaboration and, and community building and those kinds of things. And so, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily have a really good academic answer for racism and racial bias and but what I've tried to do personally for myself is try to try to understand, I guess, the history a little bit more because I think if you understand, then you can build empathy. So um, to that end, I go through, you know, I've read, I go through these like these 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 periods where I'll just go deep on a particular topic, and so I'll read, I'll listen to podcasts, I'll read different, you know. I'll watch um, things online that are around a certain topic. And so um, on this topic, uh, maybe about a year ago, you know, the Hillbilly Elegy came out. I think that was written by, I can't remember his name, but he now works with Steve Case at Revolution. But it was really interesting. It was eye-opening, right? He was talking about his upbringing 
as uh, a young person, I think in West Virginia. And what was really interesting to me was if you, if you change the names and you put in like local names, the stories aren't that different, right? You know, the themes are, are the same, the struggles are the same. And then, and related to that, I you know kind of started reading. I, I read another book called White Trash and Four Hundred Years of American History, and it just kind of took you through the you know where folks who, um, you know, what we would call white trash or folks that would you know live in those kinds of areas, you know, where they came from and the things that they had to deal with. It was really sort of eye-opening, I guess, and just you know kind of learned a lot from that learned a lot from the history and like because we don't you know not necessarily exposed to that here in Hawaii right as opposed to maybe elsewhere but uh-huh. you know those are sort of examples experiences for me personally of of trying to understand it right through just exposing myself and just trying to expose myself to that to that experience what do you wish you knew before you got started in this whole industry well, yeah, that's a good question. So um, I kind of knew going in that it was a people-driven business, but like unless, you know, when it, you're sort of in it day in, day out, you really kind of um, kind of experience and feel that, right? And so, you know, people are pretty quirky. They've got, you know, they've got motivations and, you know, their person- personalities and, motivations and agendas and so it's um and we're like social animals too right so our brain and you know a bunch of books talk about how much of our brain is dedicated towards managing sort of the social aspect um that's involved with you know being a human and so i mean if you kind of consider what's involved in this business right where you're talking about making deals and thinking about building businesses and all that, you know, a lot of it is driven by people. And again, then the people have all their different kind of things about them that um, you've got to think about and, and navigate and deal with. And, you know, it, it, it's a, I tell people that's part of the, at least for me, it's a the hard part of the business. Well, you did mention you love to read. So yeah. is there a book that speaks of this sort of like dilemma that you had dealt with that kind of helped you deal with it, gave you some good pointers, how to win friends and influence people. (laughs) I read that book. (laughs) That's a good book. And then I was like, eh, I can't remember anything from it. So, uh, um, so I listened to audio books. Yeah. So, um, that's the way that I'm able to, yeah. So I, I, I wrote some down here. Mm -hmm. Both, I don't know if I have it, but the easiest way is just go to my Goodreads account. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's like one of my most favorite apps because you get to see different books. I get to see what other people are reading, get to kind of take some notes. Um, uh, so uh, just a couple I wrote down with respect to bias, since that was one of the topics that we talked about. There's a book, Blink, right? Malcolm Gladwell's book is pretty cool. There's The Hidden Brain. Um, the Hidden Brain podcast is actually really good uh, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and then the, you know, being able to overcome kinds of things uh, like switch and decisive. The book though that I'm reading right now, I took a lot of notes on it. It's informing this way of thinking about 
you know what people of islands you know, folks of Hawaii can bring to the the table and how we think about things a little bit differently is Future Primals, a book written by Lewis Herman, who's a political um, philosophy professor at UH, is super, really interesting. Um, just sort of reframing this notion of how we organize, how we tr how we organize ourselves, and how we um, how we live a better life, right? And it's sort of based on this this connection to land, to people. It's a fascinating book. There's all kinds of good nuggets of information in there. Have to check that out. Okay. All right. There's one question I really wanted to ask you, and it was about growing up in the Hawaiian Islands. Who has been your biggest inspiration? So different points in time, I've had different people that you know kind of inspired me, motivated me. So at an early age, it was my grandparents. Um, I, I was always pretty good at school, and I don't know if this was the story, but it just sticks out in my head even at that young age. Right, I was five years old, I was living with them on Lanai. My grandpa was a pineapple truck driver, he used to spray the chemicals. And like, I love to sleep in back then, I love to sleep, right? So I, had, I always had a hard time getting up. But he would tell me, he'd wake me up in our little planet cottage, and he'd tell me, boy, you gotta work hard, right? You gotta go to school, study hard, look at grandpa's hands. And he was kind of a beat up Hawaiian man, right? Just from working so hard all those years, he told me you gotta be better than me. And so that kind of inspired me to do well in school. Um, my parents, my mom, you know, my mom especially, she was um, kind of the, the breadwinner of our family. She worked a bunch of jobs, but still found the time to show up at our my band practice thing. And, you know, more recently, I've been looking to our history of our collective history, Hawaiian history, right? And so there are chiefs of the past that I've admired and reading about that just brought, had a different worldview, even at that time, about how we do things, yeah? So... Mm -hmm. Um, there's a chief, his name was Maili Kukahi. He was the chief of Oahu. And if you ever wondered why, you know, taro patches are all about the, the same age and fish mm -hmm. ponds are all about the same age, it was this chief that said, you know, we're going to stop with the human sacrifices. We're going to stop with the warring, right? We're going we're gonna to define the political boundaries. We're going to focus on feeding our people. Right? And that was just such a different thing than what other people are doing. You're optimizing for abundance and, and prosperity. And it just changed how um, people did things and then created abundance, right? And mm. abundance for all. And so those are kind of maybe a distant role model. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> More recently, I mean, all throughout my life, looked at different people and just kind of learned from folks. So, you know, with everything that you've done and everything that you're involved with, you still really, you, you take the time to give back to your people, to the community. And that's what Purple Maya has yeah. been. Yeah. That's how it was developed. Can you tell us a little bit about who that program benefits and why you chose to create this nonprofit? Uh, yeah. So um, Purple Maya is about three years old. Um, We've gone from one school in Palolo Valley to about 10 sites across Oahu, Maui, Lanai, and now on Hawaii Island. And it's primarily aimed at helping um, high opportunity youth in underserved communities get exposure to just technology in general. And like for us, it's about um, computer science and coding. Um, and that I think we kind of look back on our careers 
Olin and I, since Olin and I started this and Kelsey came along, it's, you know, the, I guess the, the promise of what could be, right? The promise of like exciting kinds of things. If kids aren't exposed to that, then you only know what you know, right? Exactly. Sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. And so when we started, it, it was just like, let's teach them for the sake of teaching STEM. Uh, but the more we started doing it, the more we were thinking about like, how can we bring our values into it, bring our Hawaiian-ness into the organization. And it's still this ongoing effort, but it's this idea of, you know, imparting values when we work with the kids, working on projects that serve community, that serve our values. So, um, for example, you know, the two big things that we, the kids, that kids like to do that we teach is co um, video game development and website development. So like with the video games, we've got a school, Hawaiian immersion school that we're teaching them how to code. So it's a real simple arcade style game, but we're sort of basing it off on Nayole, who was the chief that uh, spirited Kamehameha away. And so it's kind of connecting the two worlds because um, it's important for the kids to see themselves in the technology. Representation matters. That's why I think Black Panther is such an important seminal kind of thing that happened, which is which is super cool because if, if the kids can't see themselves in that and, and have a connection to it, then it becomes sort of empty and, and just a, a select few who just would do it anyway, but just kind of get attracted to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that even translates to, I mean, they'll see themselves, right? They see themselves up on yeah. the big screen like, that's yeah. me. I yeah, totally exactly. can relate. And they see themselves also. I just read this and it makes sense to me. They, they see themselves as more than just a stigma. Yeah. So people talk about this all the time, especially on the white and I, yeah, the West side about how, you know, we're a statistic and you kind of, kind of feed into that right? You, right if that's the only thing you know and mm -hmm. see that you start kind of acting that way um but if we can show alternate versions of ourselves all, you know other kinds of things that you could do and be and them. presenting those opportunities as well because yeah, i feel like yeah. that's where it lacks right when you don't have a mentor or yeah. opportunities to show you another side of the world you can get stuck in your own bubble all right last question um actually maybe second to the last but who are three female or minority founders or investors to watch and why? Yeah, so um, so we've our fund has invested in a number of female-led companies. Um, one next door, right? Hobnob. Hobnob with Tina Fitch. Super experienced, um, really high-functioning, um, productive, uh, just go-getter right that we've been impressed with she was her company she had a company in fund one too so we've known her for a while i've just been impressed to press with her and are happy just to support her on this journey because we're investors in her latest company so the founder side you know in san francisco we invested in a young dynamic woman named diane king she started a company called brainify it's this really geeky kind of tech startup right it's doing artificial intelligence and and you know, machine learning and all these fancy new kind of terms and, and creating essentially this engine that helps other companies to be more effective at what they're doing. But she's a relatively young, I think not even 30 yet, um, dynamic CEO, big personality, go-getter kind of attitude. I think she's got a bright future and we're happy to kind of support her along the way. Um, there are a number of minority investors some women investors that i follow on twitter that you know, track their career 
track what they put out and the kinds of things that they share and the things that they're working on. I think Eileen Lee from Cowboy Ventures, I think that's the name of the term. She puts out some interesting things. All right. So speaking of Twitter, yeah, you had listed your first seven jobs. Did I? You did. Yeah. So I'll, I'll list them <laughs> off since we have it here. Stock boy, gas yeah. attendant, yeah. car wash, pineapple picker, yeah. bellboy, retail sales associate, and hula dancer. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, had quite a number of very interesting jobs. Out of all of the jobs that you've done in your youth, what has been your most memorable one? I guess the last one, right? The hula dancer. <laughs> yes, that's that. We all want to know about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I never danced hula up until like I was in college, and it was just sort of by by coincidence, actually. I, I danced for about four and a half years at a show called The Magic of Polynesia mm-hmm. when it was back at the Hilton Hawaii Village at the dome structure. Um, being 19, 20, being a hula, the professional hula dancer was <laughs> kind of a cool job to have yeah, in terms of like flexibility and work hours and just the hanging out part was pretty cool. Um, but it also kind of naturally extroverted, but it also kind of, I think, taught me about presentation and how that kind of matters and being professional and bringing your best self. I remember uh, a show, you know, this is like three years in and my kumuhula because, you know, going into the show, then it kind of exposed me to this world. And I went and kind of joined the halal. He came to watch the show. And after the show, he came and told me, like, you look tired. And I was like, oh, not bring your best self right to it. And people, all these people pay to watch you and you've got to do your best. So. It was, I mean, lessons in that too. But yeah, it's a kind of an unusual thing. I, I, um, I, so I graduated with my language degree. And so the funny thing is I, when I graduated, everybody, everywhere I went, every event I went to, I had to pray, pull it for everybody. Don't put them in Hawaiian, right? <laughs> and so now, you know, I, when we get together at different kinds of things now, I'm like, Hulaine, or I get up and do a hula. It's a nice little parlor trick. Not that you should employ parlor tricks, but it's uh, you know, it kind <laughs> of changes things brand. up. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, you get up do a brand. hula for everybody, and you're yeah. like, wow, that's different. I thought, yeah. <laughs> I think I, I think you should change that word to special. Special. That's special. Yeah, yes. yeah. That's it for today's episode of the Startup Catalyst podcast. Thank you to our guest Donovan Kealoha. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest podcast news and updates at Sultan Ventures. To learn more about how you can get involved in startups here locally in Hawaii, go to sultanventures.com. Till next time, aloha. <laughs>